0: Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, we sit down with Julian Lynam, who is the founding principal at Studio NYL in Denver, Colorado. So Julian began his career in London, England, and then in 1997 relocated to Colorado, where he has been building his practice ever since. And Studio NYL, they are actually structural engineers and facade designers. So they kind of have two areas of expertise within structural engineering And the project that we talked about in this episode is the Bonnet Springs Park, which is located in Lakeland, Florida. So Lakeland is actually located between Orlando and Tampa. So it's actually an inland community. And kind of the cool thing about this site is that the land was previously inaccessible. So there used to be a rail line that kind of separated the community from this space. So phase one, or one of the first phases of this project, was to remove this rail line that was no longer being used but the infrastructure for it was still there so to remove that the abandoned pieces and create a link from the community into this space so what that did is it made this huge area of I think it was over 100 acres actually it made this huge area of land accessible to the community so they decided to capitalize on it and provide a park space so the project actually includes several buildings. For this interview, we focused on four main buildings. So we focused on the event center, the welcome center, the children's museum, and the nature center. So the event center and the nature center were primarily constructed out of wood elements. So for instance the event center was glulam beams with cross laminated timber or CLT roof planks and they actually used a very interesting technique where the CLT panels had a slight gap in between them that were used as chases for mechanical and then for plumbing and electrical as well so kind of an interesting concept i guess that was that was very Fascinating, a lot of sustainability features with these projects as well. And then the Welcome Center and the Children's Museum were primarily constructed out of concrete and steel. And both buildings were kind of worked into the topography of the site. So, with that, there was some soil retention or grade was up higher on two sides of the building such that it had to retain the soil outboard of the structure. So it looks like it really kind of fits in with the landscape. Another really cool thing was there's a boardwalk throughout the site and this boardwalk is elevated such that it almost brings the user up into the trees closer to these tree canopy elements. So yeah, kind of a fascinating thing at you know a site that was previously inaccessible and now it has elevated boardwalks to really integrate the user with nature. So like I said there was a lot of different things that we talked about these projects, you know, being in Florida it is a hurricane prone region. Although it is not technically on the coast, it is still a hurricane prone region. And then the soils in this area are pretty heavily saturated so the allowable soil bearing pressure isn't as high As it is in other parts of the country. So there were some special things that needed to take place, some special challenges with the soils to make sure that the structures were stable so a fascinating project it really is a huge scope it actually just opened a few months ago so if anyone is heading down to the Florida area maybe down to Disney World or spending time in Florida I think this would be a great place to go to kind of spend some time in nature and also see some pretty fascinating structural buildings so with that I will will hand it over to Julian. Julian, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you very much, Carrie. It's a pleasure. I love your podcast and it's nice to be invited. Thank you.
0: Yes, awesome. Well, I am super excited today. So we are going to talk about a project in Florida that has multiple structures, multiple materials. So we're talking about the Bonnet Springs Park, which actually has an event center, a welcome center, a children's museum, and a nature center. So lots of different buildings on this site with lots of different challenges. So I guess maybe let's start off by talking about the event center, which I believe is Mass Timber or cross-laminated timber CLT roof structure with some mass timber beams and a little bit of steel structure too. So maybe if you could just start off, Julian, by talking about kind of the overall structure of this building.
1: Absolutely. As you mentioned, Carrie, it's a hybrid system. So you have a CLT roof plank supported by Southern Yellow Pine glulam beams being an event center it's got an 80 foot clear span and then around the perimeter of the building and, and and the sort of back house spaces and there's an outdoor bar area there are some steel beams and columns that allow for the clt planks to sit directly on those and, and create a nice thin structure so the way we approached this one especially over the event center given the long 80 foot span was we used a, a double glulam system so that the depths of a single glue lamp wouldn't be too onerous. Keep the building height down, it still gave the, the client the, the headroom they required. And the double glue lamp system made the connections to the steel columns easier, slightly more economical, also gave a nice place to hide some support systems, MEP support systems, lighting, and in some locations it hit a steel beam that supported an operable partition.
0: Okay. So there's a little bit of space between the double glue glulams then to provide for kind of that chase way and then connect probably on either side of the columns then. Is that correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's, we call them ears. So the column has ears that uh, because with a timber structure, you predominantly want to bear the timber as much as possible. That's the easiest way of supporting it rather than just bolting through the members. So it's, it's, a, it's got a double duty And then the CLT planks themselves, we did a slightly unusual situation where we left a gap between them that allowed electrical lighting and, in some locations, sprinkler systems to run between the planks so that they weren't visible down on the ceiling. So that kind of gave a nice uncluttered ceiling and event space. And obviously the architects had selected the glue lamps for the warmth and the way that the structure is the architecture
0: hmm Well, and I think it looks so, like you said, it creates that uncluttered look. But It seems that it allows for a higher ceiling height, too, because, you know, in something that's maybe a little more traditional, there's maybe a mechanical space that's below the structure, and there has to be another ceiling that's located below that. Whereas with this, the structure itself creates the ceiling, and there's these chaseways in between the CLT panels, correct? Correct.
1: There's also some trench systems around the perimeter glazing, so that distributes air through that. So yeah, we were trying to keep the structure as simple and as elegant as possible.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because it is like when you look up that that kind of reflected ceiling look or when you're looking up, it is clean lines is, is what you see. You see the wood and you see clean lines. One question that I have with these chaseways between the CLT panels, how did you accommodate for that from a lateral standpoint? So from a diaphragm standpoint, since the pieces, the structural elements aren't right next to each other there.
1: Uh, that's a good point because, yes, we actually ended up sheathing the roof on top where the roof sheathing is actually providing the roof diaphragm. And this this was actually designed quite a few years ago where it was prior to the, the SPIDWIS code allowing CLT to provide the diaphragm action. Gotcha. So because of the, the the approach we've made to the building officials down there, that's another element that gets brought into all these mass timber projects was if we were going prior to the code recognizing certain systems we had to discuss things with the building officials and they were just a lot more comfortable with using the traditional APA sheathing so that allowed us to do that (laughs) those splits in the diaphragm so
0: Gotcha. Well, it seems like it's a pretty simple fix and it's only, you know, three quarters of an inch added to the thickness of the system. So seems like a smart solution there. Okay. One other thing that I noticed about the event center is that the cantilevers are on the perimeter, get to be fairly extreme, but they have a very thin profile. So how did you address that or how did you accomplish that?
1: Yeah, we actually accomplished that by having a steel tube section with a bottom plate welded on the underside of it. And then the CLT planks could land on that bottom plate. So the, the HSS, the tube section, rectangular tube was hidden within the depth of the planks. So that shallowed up the whole system. The architect was excited to actually see the steel express. So the the, the bottom plate is visible and those are supported on the uh, the steel columns. So, yeah, that allowed a very thin profile, which we then accentuated by having an exposed steel channel on the edge that hid the gutter systems. And then the the gutter systems actually provide for a through gutter with a rain chain down into the water feature that sits between the two buildings that comprise the event center. So yeah, that that was a good system that provided that nice thin profile that all architects like.
0: Yes. Well, and I feel like it was a great marrying of the two elements, too, steel and wood. Like, it it just looks like it fits together. But you brought up another good point about the rain chain and about just capturing that roof, moisture, rain, water, and using it for the landscaping, I believe, correct?
1: Yes, there's a a landscape feature between the buildings uh, with a, a water feature element. And there's also some water quality, so collecting the rain systems allows for you know the, the natural water quality and to happen before the water then gets discharged so
0: awesome love that so let's move on to the welcome center which is a completely different system. And that's what I love about this whole project. It's like, really, I see two different systems. There's for the four main buildings, there's two buildings that are composed of steel framed with like a slab on metal deck system. And then two buildings that are very natural uh, expressed wood elements. And I love how there's these two main different systems and then how it all ties together. So the welcome center, I believe that's mostly framed out of steel with a concrete metal deck, is that correct?
1: That is correct. Concrete metal deck on the upper level with the second floor and then a, a standard metal deck just for the roof itself. So yeah, traditional steel framing systems
0: Gotcha. We used
1: the concrete elevator and stair cores for lateral and supplemented that where necessary with some steel brace frames. And that that was the case on the Welcome Centre and also on the, the Children's Museum project. And the Welcome Centre had a lot of curvilinear geometry, which was welcoming. That was the architecture expression, was a, a nice soft approach, welcoming for visitors and children. We basically were tasked with getting as, a, as efficient a as steel frame as we could and being orthogonal wherever we could. And then we had to deal with the curved linear aspects out on the facades to provide that nice rounded look. And we did that fundamentally with some structural steel framing wherever possible. And then that was enhanced by cold form metal framing to create the architectural facades and soffits.
0: Gotcha. Well, I love the juxtaposition of, you know, the event center is very orthogonal, very straight, clean lines. And then you move to the welcome center and it's very organic and that's from a 3d standpoint too just like you described it looks like the the 2d floor plate was very organic and curved but vertically that happens as well because grade is up higher on the sides and then drops down a level right to get into the entrance of the building
1: yeah on the absolute on the children's museum and the cafe buildings which are on that same side of the uh, of the site the whole landscape site there's 170 acre site so it's an enormous site um, you come in at the welcome center and then the road takes you from there up to the children's museum and the cafe and those as you say are, are really nestled into the ground originally that was being called a bridge building because we the concept was originally that the buildings would would tie across at the upper level unfortunately that sort of went away throughout the design process but The buildings are nestled into the ground to the full extent where there's about a 15 foot high retaining wall with all that lateral earth pressure that needed to get resisted. And because the buildings, those two buildings, were very open in terms of their interior layouts and not requiring or not wanting a lot of shear walls to resist the earth pressure, we ended up with more of a sort of counterfort earth system, which was able to resist the earth pressure on its own without throwing all those loads through all the roof diaphragm and the upper floor diaphragms in those buildings. So we decided to somewhat brute force it, resist the the forces in that way rather than being a detriment to the architecture and having too many solid walls inside the building. So
0: yes, self sufficient, right? <laughs> self-sustained wall. So this project is located in central Florida between Orlando and Tampa. And I know the water table is very high in this part of Florida. So did you have any special requirements or special challenges, I guess, with the soils?
1: Yes, a lot of special challenges. So given as as I was mentioning, the site is so large, we had some variable ground conditions throughout the site. And as as you'd mentioned earlier, we had a total of about 15 different buildings. Most of them were going to be on, on a sort of deep foundation, a pier system. But the event center that we've just talked about, it was slightly higher up and we were able to use traditional concrete footings on that one. But the other projects, yes, when we originally approached the Children's Museum, the cafe and the Welcome Center, Being there are also slightly heavier buildings as well with a concrete or metal deck. We were thinking we would probably be using something more like a sort of heavier screw pile system, but we were actually approached, we had a CMGC Rudder construction on board throughout the design phases, which was very helpful in that they could sort of help us with more local practice. They came back in also to try and save costs, saying that they would really like to use timber piling solutions, which is something we've we've dealt with on some projects before but this because the groundwater was so high they really felt this was the best way to approach that which is a little bit unusual system for us to, to do I mean we work all around the country but uh, having some you know large diameter timber piles driven and then encapsulating those in a concrete pier cap was a system that we you know we talked back and forth with their specialist piling contractors to really understand a bit better but that certainly helped with the whole situation of the high ground water.
0: Gotcha. How deep did those foundations have to go then the timber pilings?
1: Those timber pilings I think most of them were about approximately 25 to 30 feet so not too deep Uh, but uh, yeah it was all happening through like sheer friction effectively not really end bearing.
0: Okay this might be kind of a dumb question, I guess, but down in Florida, is there ever an opportunity to get to bedrock or is that <laughs> not, he, is that something that everyone wishes for that is just doesn't happen?
1: Depending on what different, but we've worked in different parts of Florida and there's a lot of limestone and cast and, and sort of underground caves and things. There's a, there's a lot of very strange geological conditions, but no, the bedrock was was too deep here. That's the reason why we were considering these systems.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay, so that brings up the next kind of challenging thing about Florida construction. So it's a hurricane-prone region. Were there special requirements or challenges that you had to take into account to address these higher wind loads? Some,
1: in that obviously the project was being done in compliance with the Florida Building Code, which is a sort of based on the IBC, the International Building Code. The wind loads here were in and around 150 to 150 miles an hour which it's not like the actual coast, which gets up above 180 to 200. So, and and strangely, the 150 to 155 is very similar to projects here in Colorado along the Front Range, where if you're in Boulder or Golden and you have the downslope wind effects coming off the mountains, we're, we're very similar loads. So... We're used to that kind of high wind loading, making sure, you know, the wind uplift is considered on all the roof elements. And in some of them, it was easy because we had green roofs on them, very heavy green roofs. So that was wonderful. And then obviously just the, the standard sort of following the load path, making sure everything's tied down till you get to foundation level. So it's, it wasn't too onerous. It wasn't like we were right on the coast, but certainly had to be considered. And seismic was very low. So that was interesting.
0: Okay. Yes. I'm thinking about this though. It seems like a one-two punch. You've got high wind loads because it's a hurricane prone region, although inland, but then also soils that are maybe not as solid or providing as much resistance as one would like.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The other thing we should mention is the whole project was giving this area back to the city. So there was a railroad spur from the, the late 1800s that kind of cut off this whole part of the city from the city so there wasn't easy access and then when the railroad pulled out the city was able to effectively reclaim the land so one aspect of it was there was a lot of environmental mitigation in some areas that needed to happen because of the railroad activities some of that was dealt with by effectively encapsulating it and creating earth berms and creating some topography. The other aspect of why we proposed screw piles in some instances was to just drill down through ground and not be bringing potentially contaminated ground to the surface, which you would have done if you'd used more of a sort of a drilled pier situation. So, yeah, there was lots of different interesting aspects.
0: Yeah, no, that's fascinating, though, because how many acres did you say the site is?
1: It's almost 170. It's an enormous site, and the beauty of it is the obviously with Sasaki, who is the master planner uh, and landscape architect architect, and actually civil engineer as well. Their um, remit to the city was to obviously invite the city back into a a zone that most people didn't even realize was there. And they, you know, did it in a wonderful way, not just with the buildings, but the landscape zones. They've got an amazing great lawn, a massive circular lawn for holding events. They've got paths, elevated paths, canopy walks through the live oak trees, paths that connect down to the water where there's boathouses. So they've really activated, you know, the whole of the site that isn't literally lakes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well that's so fascinating so it's 170 acres that essentially was inaccessible prior to this project just due to previous constraints the railroad being one of one of the main ones of those so that's super fascinating that now the city has this beautiful open park space with all of these cool interesting buildings. So I want to kind of focus on one of the uh, buildings. So the children's museum, we've talked about this a little bit. So this is another one of the steel framed with concrete on metal deck. I noticed from the exterior elevation here that there are some almost like tree-like elements that are columns around the perimeter. Are those functioning as gravity and lateral or what is the function of those exterior Angled column elements—I'll call them
1: <laughs> exactly. People in the office will be laughing because I try and promote tree columns on most projects I get involved with, just for the sort of not exactly biomimicry, but just a you know a playful aspect.
0: Well, I picked up on that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, given that it's a children's museum, but yeah, but the architect was certainly promoting that and, and having some playful aspects. But yes, they're predominantly gravity load for. The colonnade structure which and then they kind of bridge between the two buildings there is actually a structural expansion joint between the two but they provide like a, a covered link between the two buildings this was where the buildings were originally going to be tied across and truly be a bridge building but that that went away as i said earlier they have a little bit of lateral in them just from the colonnade roof structure so but not much
0: gotcha. <laughs> they
1: are an expressed element so they were done done to an ASS standard, an architectural exposed structural steel standard, um, because people could go up literally and, and touch them. And then they were integrated also in a lot of seat benches. Obviously in Florida, you're trying to provide as much shade as you can wherever you can around the buildings and in the park. And so there was a you know a fun element where you know the children could interact with the columns and and also get some shade and and rest between play. <laughs>
0: Yes, and it adds kind of that whimsical look that is very cool for a children's center, I feel like. Exactly. Yep. So speaking of whimsical look, the interior space of the Children's Museum has a bit of whimsy to it. You had sent me some of those interior drawings of the exhibit spaces. So some of these get to be rather large, correct?
1: They're very large, they're very, not just playful, but there's an educational component to all of them, to try and teach the children, like there's one that's related, it's called City Park, which kind of teaches the children about how the city operates and the different emergency services, are little play areas they can pretend they're firemen, whatever. And then there's another zone that's uh, more sort of agricultural based, and all of these are play elements, predominantly the children can crawl through or clamber over so you know there's a bit of education in there as well
0: yeah but they required structural support right so you guys had to do some structural design for the interior exhibition spaces as well right
1: absolutely yeah we were lucky because i mean predominantly our initial contract was for the primary structures and the buildings and then we were approached later on by the exhibit designers saying well you know you're the person that knows the most about the buildings and would like to hang a lot of stuff off the roof so would you like to engineer the exhibits and and, you know that's part of what we do as our firm is we've we do a lot of sculptures and art artwork so we've done quite a few exhibit spaces as well this was great because then you get to play with lots of non-traditional materials and as I say you know we'd already been approached to design the primary structure to allow certain aspects of hanging so there was some allowance in the roof structures for some additional loads uh, there was actually also a black box theater in that building as well for the children, so the, that that had very specific rigging s- systems designed in that part of the building. But uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. I think we played with structures that were made out of stainless steel, aluminum, lots of different types of wood, even like high-density polyethylene, and then hemp rope and climbing rope, and... <laughs> streamers and you know you're just trying to figure out rigging systems and cable systems to hang all this stuff so i had large large areas that were you know very typical of florida a lot of citrus fruit hanging off the ceiling you know slices of watermelon and, and other things so lots of lemons and things it was fantastic
0: So the question that I can't help but ask, have you been able to go down there and try out all of this stuff at the Children's Museum?
1: Not yet, (laughs) because unfortunately, all of this was happening during the pandemic. So the buildings all opened only a few months ago. Okay. So at some stage, I'd love to get down there, but not had the opportunity yet.
0: Okay, okay. Were these exhibits known when you guys were going through design documents of the building. So were you able to plan for these rigging loads and specific locations of these forces on the building structure? Or is it something where you had to have a more generalized area of this area can handle something here, we don't know what it is? Or I mean, how specific was that? Or how much of the exhibit space was determined prior to construction documents being released?
1: Most of it was the so most of it was more of a sort of blanket additional load that we incorporated into the underside of the second floor or in some areas in the underside of the roof. So the zones within the building were identified as zones that would have exhibits. Obviously we put a little bit of extra in the floor load allowances as well, knowing that something would be built on top and in addition to the live load assembly loads that we had to have in the building for per code. So. And with our experience of having done a few of these systems, we had a rough idea. We knew that you know, when it came in, things would, might be a little heavier, but what the kind of games you play then are sort of balancing off some areas against others. So yeah, it all turned out fine. <laughs> 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 yeah, we had enough allowance in, in various areas. And, and where we didn't, then we would design the system to kind of span between two zones and share the load, things like that. So
0: Gotcha get another benefit of being the engineer of record on the project and having access to all of those design documents
1: <laughs> yes and computer and software analysis yes
0: <laughs> for sure okay so we kind of talked about three of the main buildings we've talked about the event center the welcome center and the children's museum there's another notable i mean there's several like you said there are 15 structures on the property we're kind of focusing on four of the notable i hate to say more notable because i'm sure they are all important and i feel bad for the other 11 that I am not focusing on but the nature center so the nature center is located I believe right on the edge of a lake right
1: correct yeah it's uh it comprises of actually two buildings so there's a building literally right on the lake shore that has a lower level which is where they can store all the boats and kayaks that will be used on the lake out of season and so that lower level has like a a pier element timber piled pier with a wood frame pier where the boats can be dragged out and then lowered into the water. The boardwalks, as I mentioned earlier, that go throughout the park are elevated typically and they come down and meet the water at this low level of the building. And then the upper level of that particular building is got a small little cafe bar space where you can sit and relax and look out over the water. And then further along the boardwalk, back towards the Welcome Centre, there's a second nature center building which is more like a small little sort of exhibit space for for children to learn more about the nature and the, the wildlife that's in and around these lakes so it's an educational space as well as you know kind of like a fun space for the kids to see exhibits and those elements are as you say elevated up off the ground you feel like you're part of the boardwalk system as you approach them.
0: I love the idea of this boardwalk system, because to me, it seems like it is bringing accessibility to maybe spaces of the property that wasn't accessible previously or wouldn't have been accessible. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. And it deals. I mean, there, there isn't a lot of fluctuation in the lake levels, but it also gives the aspect of, you know, the buildings aren't prone to flooding. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's great. And, and uh, as you say, it's, it's, it is accessible, which is great. Good for everybody.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. So I am just thinking back to the design phase of this project as a whole. How did the project evolve through design? So it is a huge project. Like we talked about, 15 buildings, 170-acre site. How did things evolve during the design phase?
1: Well, we got we got approached. I mean, we do a lot of work with Sasaki. So, you know, we somewhat regularly in their offices. And when they were obviously master planning this project for several years, And then, as they got the sort of green light to move forward into the design phase, because we were regularly in their offices, we'd sit and just sort of sketch with them, design charrette. That's kind of how we like to work. We love to be in on day one of projects. Sort of, we also use the phrase, we can be a bad influence as well as a good influence. So, you know, if they want to push the boundaries somewhere, we we can help them out with that. But yeah, so it all started with just a few sketching. You know, people were saying, we've got this type of building over here. Were thinking about doing this you know we would suggest various building approaches once we saw how the building was starting to mass out and those various approaches I think we started the whole project thinking we might be able to do all the buildings as mass timber structures and as that evolved you know a couple of them went a different direction but you know that's how we we work we help sketch we do preliminary analyses and then come back with ideas and, and structural sketches that uh, advance the design. And, and as you say, we had a major evolution, you know, as you kind of check costs at various stages of the project. Unfortunately, well, like most projects these days and even during the pandemic, when things were very uncertain, we had to get the cost checked as we came towards the end of design development. And there were some adjustments that needed to be made to kind of bring it back on budget. So you know that's that's another major evolution milestone in this particular project, and then we had our our team was uh split up so that various team members were working with some of Sasaki's architects on each of the particular structures, and then there'd be a sort of interface between the teams where we' say, "Well, hey, over here we're doing this. should we consider that system in over on the other building because in the end you know the same contract is going to be." building them all and bringing their subcontractors to the field with various expertise. So we didn't want to be, we didn't want every single building to have completely different systems. There would be a loss of economy in that, so. Mm
0: -hmm. So were they all built simultaneously or was there an order of progression to the buildings? Uh,
1: Oh, pretty much simultaneously. I mean, it depended, um, the event center kind of went first And they were only staggered by a couple of months. And the the main reason for that was, as we were just talking about, you know, if they had the concrete sub, the concrete sub didn't have the capacity for doing all of them at the same time. So they were staggering it just a little bit to keep their resources going. But the the goal was to, you know, not sort of do one all the way through to completion and then move on to another one.
0: Okay. So with this being built during COVID times per se, were there any issues or challenges with securing materials
1: there was some of that but i think the biggest issue we all had as a design team was not being able to go to the site to assist the contractors so there was a lot of video conferencing there were people walking around with video cameras and cameras pointing out things to us and then towards the end of the pandemic a couple of site visits could be made predominantly from the Sasaki team and they were sort of our eyes and ears but uh yeah most of the Things that we had on other projects, you know, delays in like elevators or rooftop units, things that long lead items, they were trying to trying to get those purchased as soon as they could to minimize the impact on the schedule. Those were the biggest issues, yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So a little forethought on the contractor side, which is awesome. So what is the most unexpected thing that came up on this project?
1: I think really dealing with a lot of the ground conditions, because even though we had, a, as I was mentioning earlier, we had slightly different foundation systems for different buildings, you know, the contractor will go out to site, they start prepping the ground, they might find, you know, some really bad areas that needed slightly different treatments. So that was the biggest challenge was being able to react to that fairly swiftly to try and you know minimize impacts on schedule but most of those we got through you know fairly swiftly but i think that was the biggest one later on as some of the buildings were being finished they had some major monsoon events we call them there was some insane rain we got some videos from site where i I, i've never seen rain like it which unfortunately swept out some of the paths and some of the foundations on one of the small restroom structures that needed to be retrofit. So, but that that was only because the sort of final grading and, and sort of groundwater mitigation hadn't been, all those systems weren't fully in place. So it was a sort of construction phase issue, but needed to be dealt with.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that just makes you think, do you have any sort of retention requirements for the rooftop structures? Or for the roof structures? Not
1: really. The goal was to try and get rid of the rain as fast as possible. Some of the scuppers, the overflow scuppers, were very large. You know, much larger than we're used to in Colorado, obviously. But the goal was to try and just get the rain away. There weren't really serious ponding loads we had to accommodate on the roof structures.
0: I see. Well, and those first major monsoon events are always good indicators as to how the site is functioning, how the structure is functioning, making sure that everything is running business as usual. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the project has been completed for a few months. So now in retrospect, looking back, what do you think is one of the most fascinating things about this project? I think
1: just the the design vision was amazing. Just to have so many different things that you know, if you if you took your family to the site, you could be almost lost for a couple of days. There's so much to do on the site. So I think just uh, that was an amazing thing that we got to be part of, trying to, uh, you know, sort of realise that vision in, you know, expressing architecture certain ways or, as we'd mentioned, the sort of boardwalk elements. There was some elevated canopies going through the live oak trees that were fun to design. That went through a VE exercise, but, you know, they still managed to have that aspect, which is pretty amazing. Some of those are like 20 foot off the ground, which uh, I, we get feedback from you know the children saying it's amazing because there's a sort of almost like a secret area where you go along and you can find a there's like a sort of massive house in the middle of the forest up on the boardwalks that's fun for them to play in so
0: yeah that's yeah,
1: great it's just just that kind of aspect that's that's been fun
0: well, and that sounds so cool because it's like this invitation to interact with nature that maybe you don't get without some sort of structural enhancement, without some sort of built pieces that get you there. So I think that's super cool that it creates this kind of unique interaction with nature.
1: Absolutely.
0: Very cool. So if you could give the project a theme song, what <laughs> would it be? I'm
1: going to date myself here, but the band Santana used to have a song called Let the Children Play. Oh, love Uh, it. And this, this whole park is about kids and, well, it's about families, but we all know that we all get excitement looking at the kids running around exploring things. So I think that's kind of appropriate.
0: Let the children play. Love <laughs> it. Well, and I think like we all used to be kids, so we all still have a little of that innately in us where we want to play as well. So I think that's that's a great, great thing. So, okay, separate of this project, one thing, you being kind of a leader in the industry and you guys at Studio NYL have worked on some very cool and amazing projects, and I feel like you are on the forefront of innovation within the industry and I would just love to pick your brain and just kind of ask you what your dream for our industry is and I know that's a very loaded question feel free to take it any way you want wherever your heart is wherever your mind is at this moment but I just would love to get your insight into that
1: Well thanks I I've always the the most successful projects in my mind are the ones where we truly collaborate and i'm not just talking within the design team i'm talking between the design team the construction team and the owner so you know when everybody's round a table nobody's staying in their silo and only talking about their their uh, specialties. Everybody's throwing ideas out there. As I mentioned earlier, that phrase of "we can be a bad influence." I mean, we, we we comment on everything when we're involved with the design because we've seen. We were lucky. We've seen so many projects. So, but I think also that that reflects into potentially the way the industry contracts are starting to go. There's a bit more design assist. There's a bit more design build. So, when we can have the construction specialty people the contract is at the table with us as we design that is by far the best project and now the only hindrance to that obviously is owners tend to like hard bid projects where they feel that they're getting a good deal by going out to competitive bid and you know that's fine we understand that but some of our experiences, you can actually save more money by selecting a contractor and subs up front and really fine-tuning the design and and the way that the buildings are going to get built to suit the contractor's specialty, to suit the subcontractors' fabrication systems, the way they approach projects, you can save a lot of money by really dialing in. So I think you know, it, it's it all comes back to collaboration in my mind. And uh, the more our industry can move that way, I mean, there's, there was a few years back the IPD push was happening, integrated project de- delivery. We we gave that a couple of tries you know, not as successful as I'd hoped. I think it's probably more related to certain project types where that can really work. But uh, that's that's the way I think the whole industry can, you know, it's like raise all ships or whatever the phrase is where we can all benefit from it, so...
0: Yeah. Well, and as you're talking, like, the thing that comes to mind is it's relationship-based, it's trust-based, and not so much transactional. So creating those really strong relationships and trust across the board with the contractor side of things, with the design team side of things, and, like, really, like, what we bring to the table as design professionals is completely different than what the contractor brings to the table, but both are so important, and that that kind of breadth of knowledge is important. Yeah,
1: we have a we have a phrase in the company where we like to work on really fun projects or with fun people, and where the two combine, it's even better. Because, <laughs> you know, let's be honest, our industry is not easy. It's challenging. It's it can be uh, very time consuming, exhausting at times, but the, the benefits are amazing when you get to, you know, design a project like the Bonnet Springs project and see it come to fruition. It's just amazing. It's fantastic. So, and that's what we're all about is giving back to society in terms of, you know, fun projects, fun buildings, things that work for various industries and, and clients. So that's great.
0: Love it. Awesome. All right, Julian, how do you recharge? When you're not designing amazing things for people. <laughs> when,
1: I, when I have time to reach out. Yeah, I, 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 I love family time. You know, meal times with the family, great. I do uh, with my two adult sons. We, we have some fun with some board games or computer games we like doing together, which sort of go off into, you know, like a different world. But the best way to recharge for me is uh, through nature and, and travel. So, I mean, whenever I get a chance to travel, I love getting out into nature. But also if I'm traveling to a city, I'm an absolute architecture junkie. So I'm always, you know, what can I go and see? What's the latest design? How can I learn from what other people have done? And, you know, whether that's the current technology or whether that's you know, from my background in England, architectural history and, you know, how buildings have been built over the centuries and millennia, it's, it's amazing. And I, do, I love traveling internationally and meeting people from different cultures and that always completely energizes me, seeing how different people, are, you know, we're all the same if effectively, but, you know, different cultures have different foods and sensibilities. It's That's whenever I can get out, I get out. <laughs>
0: Yes, yes. Well, I think that we as Americans can take a little bit of advice from the European countries as far as vacation and holiday time. <laughs> <If> <laughs>
1: seems, <only>. like
0: they, <laughs> seems like they get a lot more than we sometimes do. So, yeah, yeah.
1: What <laughs> card play on?
0: Yes, yes. Okay. Like as you're talking about traveling and architecture in different areas of the world, where is like the place that you have been most? awestruck by their architecture
1: i'm very lucky i've been to egypt twice and the national treasures there the history the the temples there are just it's beyond mind-blowing it really is i mean i've i've been very fortunate to travel to quite a few different places but that one has a special place in my heart and I'd, i'd go back there in a heartbeat i really want to see that new museum at the giza pyramids i don't know if you've seen the design for that but I haven't. There's a $2 billion museum by an Irish architect that should be opening in a few months. You know, it's, it's such a enormous building. Uh, I, I can't wait to see that one day. Fingers crossed. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes. This winter maybe when it's not so hot there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, Julian, this has been amazing. And for listeners that maybe have children or maybe they just have a little child inside of themselves, maybe next time you're down in Florida, if you don't live there. I mean, this is not that far from Orlando, from, you know, the destination hotspot of Disney World. You know, take a trip to Lakeland, to the Bonnet Springs Park and do a little exploration into nature and learn a little bit, too. So thank you so much for being here and for talking about the project. This has been great we will put some pictures of this project because it's real hard to give it justice verbally but we'll put some pictures of the project up as we post this episode too but thank you so much julian for being here and for sharing your expertise
1: uh, i really appreciate it it's a pleasure and uh, great to talk to you carrie thank you you're doing a great job and i look forward to hearing who you've got on next
0: <laughs> thanks thanks <laughs> thank you for listening If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today.